The following is a paid program, and the views expressed on this show do not represent the views of WJZ AM, Intercom Communications, its sponsors, or affiliates. This is AHA Business Radio, creating AHA moments for business, by business, and about business. Providing opportunities to discover information to help you run your business and guide your decision-making. The more you know, the better decisions you make. AHA Business Radio is produced by Alan Hirsch Advisors. For more information, log on to ahabusinessradio.com. To join in tonight's conversation, call 410-823-1812. Now, here's your host for AHA Business Radio, Alan Hirsch. Welcome to tonight's show. Tonight, I have Anirban Basu, president of the Sage Policy Group, and uh, thank you for being here, Anirban. I, I, I enjoy this show. Uh, we've done it six years. It's an, another great time. Uh, so, what's happening in the economy? I mean, that's you know, in the national economy, uh, interest uh, the debt is highest it's ever been. The interest rates are all time low. Full employment. What's happened? You know, I've spent a lot of the last two years, you know, and thank you for having me on the show. Six straight years. I'm privileged to have been here with you for that long. But the last two years, I've pretty much spent unlearning economics. So I was taught, for instance, that as unemployment falls, inflation rises. Mm -hmm. We were all taught it. We were all taught that. Phillips curve. And the unemployment rate is a 50-year low. You'd have to go back to December of 1969 to find an unemployment rate this low in America. We've, of course, since that time had significant bouts of inflation. People will remember the 70s, or at least some people will. Inflation is just not there. I was also taught that nations that ran large federal budget or national government deficits suffered high interest rates. That's what I was taught. The notion being that uh, government spending crowds out private investment. Interest rates are rock bottom, and the debt is rock you know, at the ceiling. <laughs> right. So things have worked out much better than anyone could have predicted. Uh, this economy is strong. If you look at all of the major macroeconomic measures, unemployment, stock market, GDP, so on and so forth. And, uh, and well, we can talk about whether or not that's going to persist. But right now, this moment, January <laughs> 2020, this economy is surprisingly strong with yeah. lots of momentum. Yeah. So where's this take us? I mean, we're in uncharted territories. With, with some of these, where do you think we're going to go? I think we're going to go into recession. Not immediately, because we have that momentum working for us. This consumer spending cycle remains firmly in place. We have 6.8 million available unfilled jobs in America, 5.8 million unemployed people. So we have more job openings than unemployed people. So what does that tell and, us? And they're not in the same place. No, they're not in the same place. They're not in the same industries. And by the way, a lot of the jobs that are unfilled are middle-income jobs. Welders, truck drivers, carpenters, electricians, so on and so forth, machinists, mechanics. Uh, Yes, it's true. A lot of the jobs we create are in retail or in hospitality. That's true. But if people would train themselves to take on some of these higher-paid jobs, they could actually achieve that. And a, and a good welder in this country can make low six figures. And I have a very close friend of mine, welder, and makes $92,000 a year. You know, happens to live in the Seattle area. So, so there's that. But the point is, with so much demand for human capital, with so much demand for workers, we can expect to see ongoing job growth in America. Well, that fuels this consumer spending cycle. That fuels the apartment leasing market. That fuels the home buying market, which is really strengthening out there. There's lots of people looking for homes right now. Home Builder Conference, a 20-year high. So right now we have the momentum. But 
we've also developed a lot of imbalances in the economy, and I suspect we'll get to talk a lot about that tonight. So where, where do you want to start with the imbalances that, that are going to create uh, whatever it creates? <laughs> I think you've got to start with debt, Alan. Yeah. The indebtedness in this economy. Who, who is in debt? The federal government, of course. We know the national debt recently screamed past $23.2 trillion that the federal government somehow – during a period of full employment, ran during the most recent calendar year a $1.02 trillion budget deficit. That's not quite 5% of GDP. It's massive. And one could argue that the economy is growing for the wrong reasons, that in nominal terms, we grew around 4% last year. So here's, here's the math. In real terms, inflation-adjusted terms, we grew around 2.1%. Around that. We don't have final data for fourth quarter GDP. We'll get that later this week. If you look at inflation, inflation is running around 2%. So add it up, 2 plus 2, in nominal terms, 4%. The federal budget deficit as a fraction of GDP is almost 5%. You take away the federal government deficit spending, there is no growth in America. So that's one. Second, the consumer, the household, has never been this indebted. Whether it's student debt, credit card debt, mortgage well, debt, auto loans, they've never been this indebted. This, this year, uh, student debt out, is outperforming uh, uh, credit card debt. That's right. It's now the second largest form of debt okay. after mortgages. And people will tell me and that they're right. Interest rates are low. And so the debt service is not that problematic. I agree. Debt service right now is not that problematic. And in fact, delinquency rates on debt are quite low. But people still have to pay down that debt. And because interest rates are so low, they're being tempted to take on even more debt. And they are. Student debt, mortgages, so on and so forth. And then finally, corporate debt. U.S. corporate debt has never been this great. American corporations are massively leveraged because one of the things that we have seen is if you buy back your own shares, you can increase return on equity without growing your earnings. <laughs> yes. Now, we talked about this before the show, Alan, but corporate earnings are actually quite flat in America. But earnings per share are not flat, flat. because people keep buying back their shares. So earnings per share well, They've taken the distribution from the tax, law, uh, tax uh, uh, deductions. Uh, and buy back, what is it, the $6 trillion, billion dollars in buying back shares. Exactly right. That's exactly right. So that has helped to raise stock prices. Shareholders feel very good. But they're also often investing in companies that have a lot of debt or a lot of leverage on that balance sheet, which is a source of risk. Now, again, interest rates are low. And so the debt service for these corporations is quite benign. That said, you still got to pay back that debt. And we know that, you know, Forever 21 just went bankrupt. You know, uh, uh, Claire's, the retailer, very popular among young, young girls, went bankrupt in 2018. Actually, last year was a record year for store closures in America. So there is some pain out there, not to mention what's going on with Boeing and some other companies. Mm -hmm. And the fact that the manufacturing sector last year was in recession in America. And we could talk about that as well. I'd so there are to. some weak spots in the economy. Yeah. So... You, you had a recession in, in manufacturing. Where did that come from? Because if, if the retail is up, man, somewhere ma manufacturing has to be up. Now, if it's coming from overseas, uh, you got a 25% duty on some of the Chinese goods coming in. Where does that put this whole, in, in the whole stream of things? Yeah, I think the manufacturing recession came from a few things. One, the global economy was really weak last year. According to the International Monetary Fund, the global economy only grew 2.9% last year. And many economists define global economic recession as being anything less than 3% growth. So the world economy was very weak, and so that, of course, hurt exporters. Number two, the U.S. auto sector, which dominates U.S. manufacturing. The U.S. auto sector was quite weak last year and actually peaked for this cycle in 2016. 
Then, of course, there are the effect of the tariffs. So a lot of U.S. producers import Chinese components as part of their manufacturing process. Those components were more expensive. They have been, you know, um, people might think that the trade war is over. It's not. We still have uh, tariffs on $360 billion worth of Chinese exports. Yes, we have a first phase trade deal with China, and that helps abate some of the uncertainty. But we still have those pre-existing tariffs in place. So all of this helped to conspire to really cause manufacturing to enter recession, at least during the middle part of last year into the later part of last year. And then finally, I would say the lack of workers. It's very hard for American manufacturers to add workers right now. They just cannot find machinists and they can't find welders and other skilled tradespeople. And that, so the firms that would grow can't. And then there are some firms that are not growing because they're in automobiles or they're exporting to China or whatever it happens to be. So what happens when uh, employers can't find employees, they can't grow, they can't manufacture. Uh, again, that would, in my economics, would increase prices because the supply is down. Yeah, that's exactly <laughs> it, Al. I mean, this is one of the mysteries, right? We've got a 3.5% unemployment rate. Every employer out there says, I don't care if they're a hotel or a manufacturer or a distributor, or, you know, they'll tell you, I cannot find professionals. I can't find trained staff. And so if, if you're going to try to find people, what are you going to do? You're going to look to your competitors who have people who are trained like the way you need people to be trained, Same. and you're going to try to pick them off. Well, that's going to drive up wages because, you know, competing for human <laughs> capital. And everyone's trying to pick off everyone's employees. That drives wages higher. And then you would think, well, oh, that's going to generate broad-based economy-wide inflation. It has not <laughs> happened. Number of explanations for that, long-winded. But it, it, the, the yeah. point is we expected inflation, did not occur. Federal Reserve cut rates last year three times. Coming to 2019, very few economists were going to say Federal Reserve will cut rates any times. In fact, the expectation was that the Federal Reserve would raise rates in 2019. Nope, three rate cuts. So where does that – we need to go to a break in 45 uh, seconds or so. But where does that – with the Fed, where does that then put us in preparation for a recession for them to react to it to cut – to reduce the quantity of, in, of inflation when we have it. And so, Alan, I think in terms, of, in terms of inflation fighting, they have lots of ammunition. I mean, you know, they raised rates nine times between December 2015 and December 2018, interest rates, basically from zero to something greater than zero. And now they've taken three of those rate cuts back. It would be very easy, I think, for them to raise rates to curb inflation. Here's the bigger issue. What happens if we have the next, next recession? What would the Federal Reserve do then? That's because, what I'm talking about. Yeah, if they, right, exactly. So if they lower rates, what difference does it make? The recession will not be caused because borrowing costs are too high. Borrowing costs are rock bottom. It would be caused by something else, and they couldn't do anything about it if it came to that. That's what, I'm, that's what I meant by yeah. what I was saying. Anyway, when we come back, we'll continue this wonderful conversation with Anivan Basu, the president of Sage Policy Group. Later in the show, I'll have AHA Trivia Contest when the winner will receive a gift certificate to the Capitol Grill. I'm Alan Hirsch of Alan Hirsch Advisors, and this is AHA Business Radio on CBS Sports Radio, 1300 AM. I'm Alan Hirsch, and I believe in making a difference in the lives of others. I help you understand your vision, both professional and personal, discover why you're in business, work with your visions to align them with your why give you feedback on what is important and hold you accountable for your decisions. All this so you can improve your life and improve the lives of the people around you. If that sounds like someone you want to work with, give me a call at 
That's 443-977-4500. Looking for a new website for your business? Need some help getting people on your pages? Adventure Web Interactive is your all-in-one website source. Our websites have won multiple awards and recognitions for innovation and design. Choose from services like website design, mobile app development, database integration, SEO, social media marketing, and content writing. Call Adventure Web today for a free consultation at 410-788-7007 or click on advp.com. Strengthen, protect, and preserve your retirement nest egg. Scott Garceau here for the Stephen J. Sless Group, Baltimore's reverse mortgage specialist. Reverse mortgages have evolved to become a viable retirement tool. Enjoy retirement without monthly mortgage payments, improve cash flow, pay off debt, and stretch retirement savings. Stephen and his team can offer strategies to make housing wealth work for you. If you're 62 or older, learn if a reverse mortgage could help. Visit ReverseBaltimore.com. An equal housing opportunity lender. This is not a commitment to last. Stephen J. Sless, NMLS 298581, PRMI, NMLS 3094- Hi, I'm Dave Warnick, Chief Operating Officer of CMIT Solutions, your technology team. At CMIT Solutions, we help your small or medium-sized business with your technology needs, including cybersecurity and complete managed services in real time. You can find us on the web at cmitsolutions.com or call me at 410-220-0096 to discuss what we can do for your business. At CMIT Solutions, we worry about IT so you don't have to. At Offit Kerman, we do things differently. Clients choose us because we understand business and we're innovative problem solvers. We are attorneys who help business owners excel in both their professional and personal lives and in the most productive and cost-effective manner. That's what makes us the perfect legal partner for maximizing and protecting your business value and individual wealth. We are a full-service law firm. We are Offit Kerman. How can we help you? Now, back to AHA Business Radio, creating AHA moments for business, by business, and about business. Once again, here's your host, Alan Hirsch. Oh, welcome back to the show. Uh, with me in the studio is Anirban Basu, president of the Sage Policy Group. One of the things we were talking about the break was labor pro- uh, productivity. You know, energy costs are coming down. The price of the iPhones and and phones that, that we carry in our pockets today, which we weren't carrying 15 years ago, that the amount of storage and the amount of memory and so forth is greater than it's ever been, but productivity hasn't uh, increased. So where does that put us? Well, I mean, productivity helps define, or productivity growth helps define how rapidly living standards rise. Uh, productivity is typically measured as output per hour worked. And based on available data, and many economists argue that productivity is mismeasured, but based on productivity data, productivity in this country actually declined during the third quarter of last year, has grown 1.3% on average per annum since 2007, but since World War II had been growing above 2%. In other words, productivity growth is really quite slow in America right now. And one of the implications of slow productivity growth is, one, slower growth in living standards— and two, higher inflation. <laughs> and, yet, and yet, we see the fastest wage growth in about a decade in America. 
Uh, and we don't see much inflation, do we? I mean, based on the core PC deflator, PC stands for personal consumption expenditures, which is the most popular measure of inflation at the Federal Reserve, inflation in this country is running at 1.6% year over year. They're telling us we're struggling to get inflation up to 2%. We're trying, but we can't get there. <laughs> so really quite remarkable. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's quite remarkable. So how does all of this measure into what we or you can predict or think you're going to predict because it's tougher. The you know the the uh, economic data is all screwed up. Uh, where do you think we're going to be uh, a year from now in this country? I think that the economy will be meaningfully weaker in a year. Here's the problem, Alan. I said that a year ago. <laughs> um, so uh, what I had thought a year ago, January of 2019, is that we would have higher interest rates and we'd have more inflation. It just hasn't happened. Again, we can talk about why that is, weak global economy, what I call the Amazon effect, which is all about squeezing fat out of supply chains. I mean, there's other factors. That the, the retirement of baby boomers, who are, tend to be more expensive, being replaced by millennials, who tend to be less expensive. The effect of deregulation, right? So compliance costs are down among energy companies, among banks, so on and so forth. That would tend to strip out some inflation from the economy. But here's why I think that in a year, we could be in some tough shape. We have an election between now and then. So I can tell you this. The election's outcome is going to have some impact potentially. I'm not, I'm not trying to be partisan here. But let's face it. Elizabeth Warren is different from Donald Trump. I think you would grant me that. Well, I think they're, yes. <laughs> Bernie Sanders is different from Donald Trump. Right. Any conceivable human being is different from Donald Trump. <laughs> and I don't say that on the pejorative. I say that because going into November of 2020, we're going to have a lot of uncertainty facing a lot of economic decision makers, including many of the listeners on this show, who are going to be asking the question, what's going to happen to my estate tax? What's going to happen to my marginal tax rate? There's alternative minimum tax come back and bite me the way it once did, so on and so forth. You know, the people who listen on the show tend to be higher income folks, and so they have to think about the tax code very hard, and that tax code could change. It changed in 2017, implemented in 2018. It could change again. Okay, that's one. Second, my goodness, how much higher can this market go? I mean, it, you know, the price-earnings ratio is really quite high. Well, it's, it's well, I think you said it's 30 times earnings. If you look at the Schiller price-earnings price price ratio, price, yeah. which is, a, you know, one that often doesn't get quoted in the media. But, yes, the Schiller price-earnings ratio, Schiller is a Nobel Prize-winning economist, the Schiller price-earnings ratio is the highest it's been since before the dot-com bust of 2000-2001. So it's suggesting that stocks are pretty elevated, and it's been a really good predictor of stock declines because when it's gotten out of you know, normal equilibrium, that's when, in fact, we've seen significant corrections. So I'm concerned about that. And I tell you, what I would say is this. We've worked really hard to keep that ball rolling nicely down the fairway, right? We've cut interest rates. We've increased government spending. We've cut taxes. But in doing all of those things, we've created, I think, some sand traps, some vulnerabilities, and all it would take is one significant corporate bankruptcy that no one's looking for, a bank, an insurance company, and watch out. And then, of course, you've got things like, because of all this indebtedness and vulnerability, high asset prices, coronavirus and these kinds of black swans can hurtle from the sky, and it can also throw an economy into recession. Market was way up today. Obviously, coronavirus is not a big deal to the market today, and we'll see how it works out. But th there is a lot of vulnerability. And that's why in a year, I think the risks of recession are quite high. Okay. So where do you how then with the, with the risk of the session? What does the Fed do? 
what is the Fed would probably, I assume, continue to lower rates, right? Because they've still got net six rate increases in pocket, right? They raised rates nine times, they've cut them three times. They still got some work they could do. But again, I don't, I think it would be pushing a string at that point. Because that would that is not the event that would cause a recession, is because borrowing costs are too high. Borrowing costs are so low. It would be some other factor, some other factor no, not related to interest rates. I, I'm I'm suggesting in former in former economic downturns, interest rates were higher. The Fed could reduce interest rates, uh, which would help put money into the economy. Right now, we have more money in the economy than anything else. Uh, uh, and how does the Fed fight if we have a recession? Uh, that's what I'm saying. I don't think they would fight by cutting rates and maybe even continue to expand their balance sheet, right? So QE, quantitative easing. But like I say, it would be pushing a string. I don't think it would be very effective. I think what could happen, however, is that you could see a step up in fiscal policy. The federal government could step in with the stimulus package. In fact, notice on the Democratic side, you've got people like Pete Buttigieg suggesting that we should have a $1.3 trillion infrastructure package. You know, you know, <laughs> you know other Sounds candidates. Like, yeah. Like, yeah. Right. Yeah. So what would happen? Imagine this. The economy turns down for whatever reason. Imagine there's a Democrat in the White House. Alan, what we would get probably, this is my guess, but it's, it's, I think it's intelligent speculation, we get a stimulus package. Focus on infrastructure. They would try to pump money into the economy that way. It wouldn't be about interest rates. It'd be about those people who have been losing jobs because that's what happens during a recession. Would you know, try to get them back to work as quickly as possible. And so um, I, that's the answer. That's how policymakers writ large would respond to the next economic downturn, I predict. Okay, so let's turn it <clears throat> to the state. Uh, how's all of this affecting the state economy? Here's another amazing thing, Alan, right? Because we talk about Maryland often as being anti-business, high tax, you know, a lot of re retirees leaving the state for Florida and Delaware and other places. And all that's true, actually. And yet, if you look at the last four or five months of data, very few economies in this country have been as strong as Maryland's in terms of adding jobs. The state's unemployment rate is now down to 3.5%, which is a big deal, not only because it is tied with the national average, but because this state supports an $11 an hour minimum wage now. So one might have thought that, you know, with that $11 minimum wage, you'd see a lot of job loss in retail and hospitality, so on and so forth. And maybe we have seen some job loss in those segments, but not enough to drive that unemployment rate higher and not enough to cause us to not add jobs. We've been adding lots of jobs recently. As I said, the last four or five months have been brilliant performance. And for us Baltimoreans, we can take heart in the fact that the bulk of jobs being added in this state roughly 80% of them over the last year, have been added in the Baltimore metropolitan area. And you can see the dynamism of this economy in downtown Towson, downtown Columbia. You know, both of these communities are under redevelopment. Trade Point Atlantic, the redevelopment of that Bethlehem steel you know, site. Which 3,500 3, acres? Of, of industrial zone land on the East Coast. Huh? Yeah. We now have some progress being made in terms of allowing double stacking of containerized cargo on rail from the port of Baltimore as we deal for finally with the Howard Street Tunnel. Now, that's perspective, but it's going to have an economic impact uh, generally. And then Baltimore City, even with its 348 homicides last year, 999 over the last three years, you would have to go back probably to the late 1990s to see so many cranes in the air over Baltimore. So lots of dynamism in the region, lots of job growth in the region. Construction happens to be a physical manifestation of that. Lots of construction in the region. And so, you know, it's a good news story. Yeah, well, with that, let's take a, our second break. And when we come back, I'll continue this conversation with Anibhan Basu, president of Sage Policy Group, 
I'm Alan Hirsch of Alan Hirsch Advisors, and this is AHA Business Radio on CBS Sports Radio, 1300 AM. Baltimore, this is Will Holmes, Chairman of the Board of the Baltimore City Chamber of Commerce. We are building a community and you are invited. Join us every first Tuesday evening for our general body meeting, every second Tuesday evening for our Business After Dark networking event, and every fourth Wednesday morning for our breakfast networking and resources event. The City Chamber is here to bring business leaders like you together and make it easier for you to do business. Learn more about these events, membership opportunities, and how you can get involved in Baltimore's business community at BaltimoreCityChamber.org. Now, back to AHA Business Radio, creating AHA moments for business, by business, and about business. Once again, here's your host, Alan Hirsch. Uh, welcome back to the show. Uh, I'm glad that Anibon Basu is here. He's the president of the Sage Policy Group. So you, you briefly talked about, Anibon, the uh, effect on the economy on Baltimore City. Uh, and that's the central of this audience. Uh, so... What is the murder rate of the last couple of years, which has been, believe it or not, out in left field? It's been really, it's statistically off the charts comparison to a lot of other American cities. How has that affected the economy? Totally. It's totally shaped economic performance in, in, in many ways. So one, cities losing population. So um, cities should not be losing population. I mean, this is a time that's been very good for urban America. Cities like Nashville, Denver, Austin, Atlanta are simply booming. And given our institutional strength and our location, I mean, and look just on the street, Washington, D.C., how it's boomed economically. Why? Millennials like the, love the cities. I mean, I don't know if they're going to continue to love the cities as they have families and so on and so forth, but they have loved the cities. So my feeling is that our homicide rate prevented us from enjoying a once-in-a-lifetime economic boom. Um, that while there are millennials who have moved to and live in Federal Hill and Canton and, you know, Fells Point and Otterbine and Wyman Park and so on and so forth, Mount Vernon, many more thousands would have come. Why? Because Washington, D.C. is so bloody expensive. And they could still wor work in Washington area, whether Montgomery County or the district in North Virginia, but take rail down from Baltimore and enjoy a much lower cost of living. Mm -hmm. Pay down that student debt faster. Um, and, you know, imagine a safe Baltimore, what the quality of life would be in a Baltimore where you didn't have to always look over your shoulder. Can you imagine? It would be spectacular because yeah. Baltimore is a beautiful city. It's, it's a wonderful city. It's a city. wonderful city. It's a great city. It's home to the Orioles and the Ravens. And so on. I mean, it's just fantastic. fantastic. It's great. Yeah. And yet it, what prevents it from being great is that you have to look over your shoulder. And, and you that's, a, that's only changed in the last three years since Freddie Gray. Yeah, with Freddie Gray, the worst of that occurred on April 27th of 2015. Mm -hmm. So it's been almost five years now. It's been that long, yeah. Yeah, and the city changed. See, here's the thing, Alan. It's not as if we didn't have violence before, what do you want to call it, the uprise and the riots, right, whatever. Right. People have different names, whatever. We know what it was. There was almost sort of, I don't know, a pact that people who engage in criminality would operate in certain parts of the city. But basically, you left downtown alone. You left Guilford alone. You left Roland Park alone. You left Mount Washington alone. What seems to have changed over the past five years, and this really affects, I think, the taxpayers, uh, the major taxpayers, the largest taxpayers in many cases, is that that criminal element now is, doesn't care about those kinds of boundaries. And they're emboldened. They're emboldened by a police department that has been weakened, weakened by rhetoric, weakened by all kinds of things. And so criminality runs rampant. And, you know... We talk about the homicides, 48 homicides. It's a big deal just to get shot, Alan. 
That's sort of a that would ruin my week. I can tell you right <laughs> yeah, now. Yeah, it would ruin I mean, mine I mean, too. Be, I mean, right? So, and then you know the, the windows being broken into and so on and so forth. You know, the Johns Hopkins student who has her cell phone taken. These are serious crimes. We don't view them often as serious because they're not as serious as homicides, but they're still serious and they're quality of life issues. So thousands of professionals who would have moved to this city, including millennials, did not. Hmm. And so as a result, you don't see the economic boom here that you've seen in a Boston, San Francisco, Nashville, Denver, Atlanta, Orlando, so on and so forth. And it's too bad because at the end of the day, what do you have? You have a city that's shrinking in terms of population and tax base. And, uh, but we still have, uh, in certain areas of the city, a boom in construction. Right. Harbor East, Harbor Point, Point as right. examples, Apples. right? And in some sense, what's happening? I mean, when Port you look Covington. At Port Covington as well. But what is that about, Alan? I'll tell you. I remember I went to high school in the Detroit metropolitan area. And in Detroit, they have something called the Renaissance Center. And the Renaissance Center was a place you would go to that was physically within the borders of Detroit, but wasn't really Detroit. You could go in and out of that place without really being in Detroit. And a lot of these places, like Harbor East, Harbor Point, in some sense, you can avoid very much any hazards that Baltimore creates and be in Baltimore physically. But you're not really in the heart of Baltimore, are you? Port Covington, same thing. Right. You know, right? So we have to make the whole city safe. And I have to tell you, in 2011, when we had fewer than 200 homicides, 197 that year, I thought that this city was headed so much in the right direction. It felt so good. And then Sheila Dixon and the gift card thing, we get Stephanie Rawlings Blake, and not to go after individuals, but the fact of the matter is, since that moment in our history, everything's been downhill from the public safety perspective since that time. So we have these outposts of prosperity, or growing prosperity. But for the most part, the city is a basket case. And yeah. a lot of suburbanites will not even go to the city anymore. I was so happy when the Ravens were 14-2, and two, went to the playoffs, because actually that induced a lot of people who had been avoiding the city, <laughs> forced them into the city to go to M&T Bank Stadium. And then, of course, what do the Ravens do? They lay an egg, lose 28-12. But the point is, <laughs> it got them re-engaged with the city. But, you know, then that playoff run ended. And now, I suppose many people are falling back into those old habits of avoiding the city. Well, as a result, many restaurants have closed or closing. Uh, the Mimo is one of the famous uh, Little Italy, Italy restaurants for uh, is closing or closed. Uh, it's certain areas are booming and, and others are closing. Uh, we have to try to find a way to turn it around. How do you turn that around? I mean, look at what New York did. It's not, it's not hard, Alan. Other cities have done it on a grander scale. You know, recently, the city of New York, which has about 14 times Baltimore's population, went a whole weekend without one shooting? Forget about homicide. They didn't have one shooting. I know. Accidental or otherwise. It is possible to have civility in, an, in urban America. We know it is because we see it. Um, and yet somehow in Baltimore, we've got it all wrong. So in Baltimore, I don't know. I, again, I don't want to pick on any individual, but I, I, I think that there is at least one prosecutor out there. I won't name <laughs> her name who enjoys prosecuting police more than any other thing in her existence. And don't get me wrong, a police person, man or woman, who commits a crime is a criminal. criminal. But, right. Okay, I agree with that, 100%. But, but I frankly, I tell you, when I go to Baltimore City, my offices are in Baltimore City, the police don't scare me. The criminal element scares me. Absolutely. They, uh, uh, you know, they've, they've been bantering about for, I don't know how many years, this uh, eye in the sky proposal, which I think they're probably going to finally get, uh, which is not invasion of privacy when you look at it, but 
it can trace where murder murders and violent crimes originate, where the people originated, and then where they go and can capture them. Oh, I think that everybody in Baltimore, myself included when I'm there, should be on candid camera. <laughs> that we should be like London, you know, CCTV. We everyone. It, We've got a problem here, Alan. I mean, people are dying. I so know. I ask, look, I mean, three in three years, we have 999 homicides. Okay, that's one six hundredth, one six hundred, uh, six hundredth of the city's population. One out of 600. Over the course of a generation, let's call it a generation every year, uh, 18 years, a generation 18 years. So multiply three times six. That means you would have murdered 1% of the city's population in the course of a generation. If we think a lifespan of 72 years, you would have murdered 4% of the city's population over the course of a lifespan. That's the kind of criminality we're talking about. And that doesn't do with the shootings and the car break-ins and all the rest of it. So the chance of being a victim of crime are so high. Right. And how can we live like this? And yet... I look at the city's policymakers, I frankly do not sense any urgency whatsoever. They well, talk a game, but not they, a good game, and they don't the, walk the, the walk. The politicians, they worried about, excuse me, plastic bags and, the, and things like that and didn't once talk about policing. They worry about styrofoam. I mean, yeah. they're obsessed with styrofoam. styrofoam. Yeah. But criminality, homicides, shrinking tax base, that doesn't seem to alarm them whatsoever. They care deeply about Airbnb. I mean, to listen to them, Airbnb is the greatest problem in the 21st century. That's the problem. It's not. It's the criminal. Absolutely, that's the problem. Absolutely. You're, you're absolutely right. It's a criminal, criminal element, uh, and it's been creeping into the county. 50 homicides in the county last year, Alan. It's yeah. a record. Yeah. 50. We had 27 the year before. So homicides in this county went up by more than 80% in one year. That's a problem. Yeah, it's close to doubling. Yes, it is. And that's exactly <laughs> right. And um, and so, you know, in the core of the metropolitan area, Baltimore City, Baltimore County, we had almost 400 homicides last year. I mean, what is this? This is 2020. And like I said, other cities, Boston, New York, have figured this out. They're perfectly safe places. Well, uh, I have my own opinions, but uh, when you have a state's attorney that's uh, uh, had a 20, 25% conviction rate, there's no, there's no penalties. Especially if that conviction rate is mostly police officers, right? <laughs> right. I mean, I mean that's so that's why so the, the issue yeah. here is the criminal element is emboldened. Right. They feel they can get away with any, anything. With anything. But, and yeah. I think the homicide solve rate was something thirty two percent or something like that last year, something like that. You know, but pretty low by historic standards. But I'm not surprised by that because you know I watch these uh, uh, these uh, English based, I mean London based criminal shows, and you've got eight or nine officers working on a single case for months. But my goodness, when you've got a homicide a day, your homicide detectives are pretty you know, thinly stretched, aren't they? I mean, how much time can they spend per case? Not very much. So what are they going to solve? They're going to solve the all obvious ones. But any you know, time where it's random in some sense, a stranger killing somebody else, how are you going to solve that case? So the fewer homicides you have, the greater the solve oh. rate, and the less emboldened is each criminal. But right now the criminals emboldened because right. they're hiding under the cover well, under criminals. Let's, other criminals. Let's, let's get away from the... Yeah. From yeah, yeah, the uh, yeah. Uh, the bad news in Baltimore City mm. and talk about the good news in the economy, uh, which is still booming. Uh, one of the things on the state level, which is the uh, Kernan report uh, on education, where do you sit with, uh, with, with that? I mean, it's, it's millions of millions of dollars to fund the whole thing. Uh, how do you think that could af would affect if some or all of it were put into position? Right, so... 
let me, in the interest of full disclosure, you know, I have clients who are very much interested in Kerwin, the Kerwin Commission's reports and recommendations. As you probably heard, it's really billions of dollars that after 10 years of implementation, the annual cost would be around $3.8 billion. And one could argue with that figure, but let's just let's just take that. That's can, a lot of can money. Can we uh, hold here? Yeah. We got a commercial break. When we come back, we'll continue the conversation on the Kerwin Report. I'm Alan Hirsch of Alan Hirsch Advisors, and this is AHA Business Radio. In the digital world, first impressions are everything. If your site is slow or outdated, you could be missing out on valuable business. The team at Adventure Web Interactive is ready to help you bring your website up to date so that you can reach new audiences and convert more leads. Contact Adventure Web today at 410-788-7007 for a free website analysis or visit them on the web at ADVP. Com. Join Casey Cares in celebrating 20 years at their roaring 20th anniversary gala on March 28th at the American Visionary Art Museum. The Casey Cares Foundation provides ongoing and uplifting activities for critically ill children by organizing family-centric events for kids that are undergoing treatment for leukemia, severe sickle cell, cystic fibrosis, and other life-threatening illnesses. Visit caseycares.org or call 443-568-0064. At Offit Kerman, we do things differently. Clients choose us because we understand business and we're innovative problem solvers. We are attorneys who help business owners excel in both their professional and personal lives and in the most productive and cost-effective manner. That's what makes us the perfect legal partner for maximizing and protecting your business value and individual wealth. We are a full-service law firm. We are off at Kerman. How can we help you? Hi, I'm Dave Warnick, Chief Operating Officer of CMIT Solutions, your technology team. At CMIT Solutions, we help your small or medium-sized business with your technology needs, including cybersecurity and complete managed services in real time. You can find us on the web at cmitsolutions.com or call me at 410-220-0096 to discuss what we can do for your business. At CMIT Solutions, we worry about IT so you don't have to. The Maryland Construction Network is an innovative construction association representing the entire construction community. With premier networking events, relevant educational programs, and unique and creative ways to market and promote your business. The question is, why not the Maryland Construction Network? It's affordable and it's effective. As a business coach, I recommend that you check it out for yourself. Visit mdconstructionnet.net to learn more. That's mdconstructionnet.net. I'm Alan Hirsch, and I believe in making a difference in the lives of others. I help you understand your vision, both professional and personal, discover why you're in business, work with your visions to align them with your why, give you feedback on what is important, and hold you accountable for your decisions. All this so you can improve your life and improve the lives of the people around you. If that sounds like someone you want to work with, give me a call at 443-977-4500. That's 443-977-4500. Now, back to AHA Business Radio, creating AHA moments for business, by business, and about business. So, we were talking just before the the last break about the Kerwin. Where do you think that's going to end up? I think it's going to end up being implemented over a very lengthy period. Here's the thing, Alan. There's a few things to think about. One, 
the status quo with respect to public education in Maryland cannot stand. Right. Our outcomes are dreadful. We are among the most educated states in the country. We're among the most affluent states in the country. Generally speaking, socioeconomics predicts educational outcomes. Despite our elevated socioeconomic status, Mm -hmm. we have very bad outcomes. In some tests, we score below the national average. It's unbelievable. And it's a nation that includes states like Mississippi, Alabama, Tennessee, so on and so forth, <laughs> and we score below the national average. Right. Okay. That's what, so the status quo doesn't work. Number two, we know that money in and of itself doesn't solve the issue. If it, if it did, we would have already solved it. Because the Thornton Commission, some of your listeners might remember many years ago, a couple of decades ago, suggested that if we equalize funding across jurisdictions, if we give the poor jurisdictions more money, educational outcomes will generally improve. And I think you look at that and you say, they did not improve as much as the taxpayer had hoped. That's for sure. The, the folks who are part of the Kerwin Commission would say, look, Thornton was unfocused. The notion was we spend more, we get more. Kerwin's recommendations, they would argue, and I think they're right, are more focused, more targeted on things like pre-kindergarten, on things like creating vocational certificates for high school graduates which, so which, they can which, enter which, professions, which, which is fantastic. That, which is fan, which fantastic. you and I have talked about before on this show, which, fantastic. Is, which is a wa- waste of of education for many students. We, we, we cannot have young people lost upon 12th grade graduation. It's fine if they go to Yale or Stanford or University of Maryland or UMBC. That's great. But even but, but half our kids don't go to college. Exactly. And for that group, we need another option. And, and, and Kerwin, among its recommendations, creates that option. You know, creates ready-made paths into actual occupational categories. So the skilled trades, fantastic. It costs money. So here's the thing. What I noticed from the policymakers in Annapolis, whether progressives or conservatives, is a lack of interest in really raising taxes. They don't want to do it. So given that, where is the money going to come from to finance Kerwin, which after 10 years of implementation would, if implemented with Fidelity, would cost $3.8 billion. It's not going to be there, Alan, probably. Right? So what they're going to do is they're going to piecemeal this. They're going to pick and choose recommendations. Some are going to get funded. Some are not going to get funded. But all of Kerwin is not going to be implemented anytime soon. That's the prediction. I could be wrong, but that's the prediction. So I hope, the hope would be, that they pick the recommendations that matter the most. And in my mind, the recommendations that matter the most, I think, to implement quickly are expansion of pre-kindergarten. Why? Here's why I say this, Alan. And this could get me into a lot of trouble saying this. I think one of the issues is bad parenting. Yes. So if you get people more socially exposed when they're three years old or four years old, I think you can overcome some of that. That's one. Right. And not only that, but when you get children at a younger age and you get them into education at a younger age, they blossom faster and enjoy what they're doing more. And they're not behind by the time they get in kindergarten, kindergarten. in terms of vocabulary, which right. means that by fourth grade, they got a shot to be even with their classmates. That's, that's exactly right. right. And the second thing is those vocational certificates. Working with industries, construction, manufacturing, logistics, to create pathways for our graduates who are not going on to college, those who are not going to college, to find gainful employment quickly. So they don't get lost out there, Alan. And so um, that's, that's, that's my thought and that's my hope. Um, but that's why I think we stand with Kerwin Commission. But there doesn't seem to be much appetite right now in Annapolis to vastly increase taxes. You'll hear some talk about tax increases. Don't get me wrong, Alan. But I'm talking about the broader body politic doesn't seem to be that interested. Well, they're they're not interested in raising taxes, and they haven't been that interested in reducing taxes. With the uh, I forget the name of the report that came out a couple years ago. The Augustine that, Commission. Augustine Commission. Yes, uh, which had some great, great. Fantastic. Uh, it was a great. Uh, I had Augustine on here, 
and we talked about a number of those proposals, none of which uh, in the second report were ever implemented. And it's frustrating, Alan, because in some cases, I think we could lower our tax rates and actually collect more tax revenue. I mean, the goal is for government. If you're an Annapolis policymaker, you would want to do something that would you know, generate more tax revenue. If you could also do something that would help the business community while you're raising tax revenue, you should do it. One of the things I would have said is, why do we have an 8.25% corporate tax rate? Who wants to pay that? No one wants to pay that. Virginia is 6%, and they have a Democratic governor who will tell you it's too high. So um, if, I think if we had a competitive corporate tax rate, we'd have more corporate presence here, more corporations would even allocate e their income to Maryland, and e they'd be paying taxes on even it. Even just reduce it to the uh, uh, personal property tax for the individual. Fine. And, and then you, besides that, you have a balanced income when you have pass-through income. They, I mean, right. So you, you know, I think the highest marginal tax rate in our state, I think it's 5.75%, right? Something like that. But yeah, lower to that, you have now a competitive corporate tax rate. And my guess is you'd have more corporate presence here, more accountants assigning corporate income to Maryland activities, and end up actually collecting more after one or two fiscal years, maybe even immediately in terms of corporate taxes. So Annapolis is happy. The companies are happy. Employees are happy. Shareholders are so happy. happy. Everyone's happy. happy. That's the goal, Al, to be happy. happy yeah. So why wouldn't you pass a policy that's going to make everyone happy? I don't get it. I, I don't either. And the, the governor just hasn't gotten on the agenda. It's the same thing in Baltimore City. Some of the politicians just don't want to do what needs to be done. You can't, Alan, have the lowest test scores, the most crime, and the highest property tax rates. That's just not a recipe for success. And that's exactly the city's value proposition. Is, it, is there any wonder that it struggles? And you watch, Alan. I mean, the city is losing population. Everyone knows that. has been for quite some time. But you watch as these millennials who've been moving into these fancy apartments and pay massive amounts of rent. They're living life you know, high right now. But wait, as they turn into their 30s, start having families, families, they're coming to the county. Right. They're coming to the best school districts. And by county, I mean Howard County, Anne Arundel County, Baltimore County, Hartford County, Carroll County. But they're coming to a county. Right. And you'll watch Baltimore City's population loss will actually accelerate going forward especially if they don't do something about that homicide rate. Yes, and, and I, th I think you're right in that. And uh, where is the economy here going to affect the international economy? Right. Uh, you know, that's important. I mean, um, coronavirus notwithstanding, the notion has been that the global economy will be stronger in 2020 than it was in 2019, meaningfully stronger. You know, there's a lot of uncertainty that was facing us in 2019 that no longer faces us. So Brexit, which is a big cause of source of concern, right, Brexit, now, with Boris Johnson, you know, rallying his conservative troops in England and, and winning that election uh, by a landslide, it appears that we're going to have a pretty smooth Brexit, and that's sort of taken off the uncertainty table. First phase trade deal with China. So as late as December of last year, we were worried that these new sets of tariffs were going to come on consumer electronics products on, on December 15th of last year. Didn't happen. Instead, we get a first phase trade deal. Not to say the trade war is over, but the level of uncertainty has abated. We also get the ratification by the House, by the Senate, signature by the President, of the USMCA, the new NAFTA, the U.S.-Mexico-Canada Trade Agreement. So a lot of the uncertainty that was facing the global economy and our Nash economy in 2019 is no longer there. And so that should help the manufacturing sector of the economy and the agrarian or agricultural sector of the economy, which were two of the very weak spots in the economy last year. And then finally, home building which has been a weak spot for years since the Great Recession, single-family home construction is coming back in America. Permits are way up. And so that's another. That's a third sector that's going to be stronger in 2020 probably than in 2019. And because we're 
a quarter of the global GDP, we're 25% of global output, we, that's okay. going to help. Yeah, that's how big we are. <laughs> we're going to raise the entire world's economy, I think. Again, coronavirus notwithstanding. So everything looks good, but everything doesn't look good. A lot of sand <laughs> traps out there, a lot of vulnerabilities, and in particular, it's sort of a, a two-headed monster, indebtedness, massive indebtedness, corporate level, household level, government, and two, very elevated asset prices. And what can go up can come down, and the more it goes up, the more it can come down. In both 2002 to 2000, sorry, in both 2000 to 2002, and then again 2007 2009, the S&P fell 50% roughly on each occasion. So there was a joke a few years ago, my 401k is now a 201k. <laughs> Not a funny joke, but it, now it's an 801k. <laughs> but if you suffer the episode, if one, if, if we suffer the episodes of 2000, 2002 or 2007, 2009, you get back to 401k. I'm not saying that's going to happen, Alan. That's your job to figure that out. It's not my job. That's I, your I, job. <laughs> but what I'm saying is there is precedent for that, and it mm -hmm. could happen. And so that's why I say not all is well in the kingdom. Well, I want to thank you very much. I enjoy this conversation every year. I look forward to having you next year if you're willing to. Uh, I want to thank you very much. How can our listeners reach you? www.sagepolicy.com. Sage Policy Group is our company, 15 years old, and uh, absolutely they can find us there. Thank you. I want to thank my producer, Kyle. Thank you for everything you do. I'm Alan Hirsch of Alan Hirsch Advisors, your host. To reach me, call 443-977-4500 or visit my website, alanhirschadvisors.com. You can listen to podcasts of past shows at AHA businessradio.com and uh, you can follow me on Twitter, Facebook and YouTube. This has been AHA Business Radio on CBS Sports Radio 1300 AM. Good night. Thank you again, Anibon, for being here and uh, have a great week. Music